Welcome to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast, where we get to bring you sermons and content to help bring you closer to Jesus, develop your faith, and keep you up to date with everything young adults. Join us Sunday nights at 7 p.m. in the SCG Church Warehouse for our young adult service, or at our main campus services. We hope you enjoy. Now, the, the truth is, I think we all love a good mystery. One of my very favorite things to do with my, uh, my staff is whenever... Um, uh, we do like a big event and they kill it like they normally do or they always do. Um, we love to do escape rooms together, right? And so um, I'm trash at them, right? I'm like, I'm like trying to find meanings in like the color of the wall. I'm like, it's orange for a reason. I'm telling you, and they're like, you idiot, right? I'm just thinking way too deep into something, right? And, uh, and so I love doing these escape rooms because I love one, the bonding experience, but two, I also love kind of like looking at the mysteries and the signs to uncover and discover the truth that's potentially behind them. Now, when you think about it, right, the Bible is a mystery that sets a disturbing plot line that sadly includes all of humanity forever and always, right? That all that we are all, in some sense of the way, participants in this fall away from God and left in this hopeless situation that sin has left us in. And then, there, then there's an actor, God, who, in some sense of the way, sets in place various stages of this grand mystery. So in Genesis chapter 1, it says, God created everything, and then he creates some people man and woman, right? Adam and Eve. And then we read in Genesis chapter three that something happened, that sin entered into the human story and you're asked with a question, okay, what is God gonna do now, right? Uh, in the book of Psalms chapter 19, verse one, it says, for the heavens declare the glory of God. What is this great God gonna do about this big and great problem now? How is he gonna solve the sin equation? Well, if you actually read in Genesis chapter three, there's a prophecy that's gonna take place and it says that one day there will be a man that comes from Eve, a descendant from her, which means it's going to have to be a biological human being that's going to come and crush the head of the snake. And the snake is evil, is, is representative of Satan and, uh, and, and evil in, in the human story. And so this forecasting and, and, and prophesying uh, Jesus is going to come thousands and thousands of years later, right? And then you go to the next kind of big story in Scripture. Well, sin is continuing to rise in, in the human story because it's running rampant. And so God looks down and says that he regretted making mankind. So if you know the story, there's a man named Noah, and he had a big ark, and some people and some animals came on that ark. And God just says to kind of click like the Xbox reset button on all of humanity, and he purges the world of this evilness and decides to restart. And then a little bit later, you have a story of Abraham. Abraham, God uses Abraham to start the Jewish nation and all of the Jewish people, right? And, uh, and then next in the story, I guess you would say, is Moses. He brings the law, you know, the Ten Commandments, those things, right? I'd be curious how many of us actually know the Ten Commandments. Um, I would hope I memorized them, but anyways, right? So from the Ten Commandments, there's 625 laws that come from there, right? About Jews not being able to wear cool clothing and have weird hats and curly hair and a bunch of other things that go with it, right? And they can't eat like seafood or something, whatever random, random things that come. They can't have In-N-Out and sushi all on the same day um, and things like that, right? It doesn't say that, but you get it. Uh, and then later on in the story, you have, uh, you have the Jews, you have their history, right? Them being in captivity for 400 years in this place called Egypt and all of that. And then finally, out of the Jewish lineage, there becomes the super Jew, Jesus Christ, right? The Jewish savior and Messiah that was designed to save the Jewish people. And then the Jews rejected him, right? God shows up on their door, was like, what's up, bro? I'm here. And basically they're like, who are you? And he's like, for thousands of years now, right? You have been reading about me, right? Remember way back that there was supposed to be this guy who's going to crush the, the serpent, you know? Oh, that's me, right? And they're like, no, nah, bro, like, you don't look like, like the guy I thought, like, basically he gets catfished, right? Like, it, it's a whole, you know, they, they think he's going to look different, sound different, but he's the real guy. 
And then you have the end of the world and all of human history in the book of Revelation, right? These different stages of God's grand mystery. How is God going to weave all of this stuff? And what chapter of Revelation are we in today, right? <laughs> all these things, it's kind of this grand mystery. See, these various stages are called ages. What is an age? It's a time with a beginning and a what? An end. That's what an age is. And so with Adam, there was an age. With Abraham and Noah, there was an age. With Moses, there was an age. And now the stage or age in which we are in, if anyone says, like, you know, on the street, like, hey, what, what age are we in? You're going to go, oh, we're in the church age. I'm so glad you asked. No one asked that, right? Now, we are in something what theologians call the church age, and it ended or began after something called the apostolic age. By the way, this is one of the things, this is just free notes, um, that separates Christianity, modern-day Protestantism, from the Catholic Church. They still believe that although we are in the church age, that they have something called apostolic authority. I do not believe that any pastor, priest, has something called apostolic authority. If you are Catholic or grew up Catholic, you know that the head of the Catholic Church is who? The Pope, yeah. The Pope has something called apostolic authority. He can look into Scripture and go and add things to it or take a sharpie and go, nah. And I go, no, you, don't, you can't do that. The apostolic aged end when John, the very last disciple of Jesus Christ, died on an island in Patmos in the Greeks, Grecian islands. That's when it ended. John wrote the book of Revelation, penned it, died at some point. Um, and that's when the apostolic age came to an end and started something called the church age. So we're in the church age today. Now, Paul's also gonna teach us something that after the church age comes, Israel age begins or at least continues. Now, this is kind of confusing. Track with me here. If you know anything about your Bible or just like history in general, you'll know that like there was a pretty predominant monotheistic religion that predated Christianity in Israel. What was it called? Judaism, right? And uh, it predated us, and it was most of its inhabitants, 99.9%, 100% of its inhabitants were in a place called Israel. Well, from there, this new branch of Judaism, it's called, rather Christianity is just called Judaism completed, by the way, um, kind of came from it and spread across the entire world. Now, when the church age ends, Israel's age actually continues to in intensify because Israel's age is still and always been. Now, Israel, we talked last week, there's been a lot of things that have happened to the Jews. If you don't know your history, um, it starts in, well, it starts 1,600 years before the birth of Christ, but we don't go that far in the history. We'll just go to 70 AD. The Romans come and they burn down the temples. The reason that modern day Jews don't have a high priest, like the high priest that was around when, when Jesus was alive to get Jesus crucified. Um, remember he ripped, if you know the story of the passion, then he ripped his, his, his clothes, because I don't know, it means he's angry or something, um, and a bunch of other things. Now, um, 70 AD, the Romans came in and squashed Israel, literally just ruined their people, killed millions of them, burned all of their houses and their, and their Torah, the books of the Bible, um, and killed their high priests. And now Judaism today cannot actually be practiced as it's supposed to be practiced. Does modern, do, do modern Jews kill pigs? And well, it wouldn't be pigs, it'd be lamb, um, right? Um, no, that's because their temple, they don't have high priests. They actually can't practice Judaism like they're historically supposed to, Right? And then you go, um, let's say, to 1941. There was a man named Hitler. They, they systematically killed 9 million Jews in these places called concentration camps, right? The Jews have gone through a lot in human history, right? But they continue to come and rise. And, and I think it's because God has his hand on the Jewish people. He still has a plan. And this is the mystery that Paul's going to be uncovering today, that God is simultaneously and somehow going to save Christians, people who have professed faith in Christ, but also one day he's going to save Jews, now, there were two words we learned last week, and maybe you weren't here, but the two words that we learned were diachronically and synchronically. 
So we're gonna re-kind of go through these words today. Diachronically um, means for a future event. Synchronically means for today in this situation. So I don't believe that when, when the gospels, or, or rather when Paul in Romans talks about that one day God is gonna save the Jewish people, it's written diachronically. Like what does that mean? It means that he's gonna save the Jews that are living in a very specific time and place. Not all Jews synchronically everywhere at all times, right? And so there's a prophecy that, Oh, let's jump into it. Okay, so how much what time? By the way, last week I spoke for 57 minutes. I'm gonna speak for, how long have I been up here already? <laughs> I'm gonna speak for, I've been up here for 14 minutes. I'm gonna speak for 14 more minutes. Okay, so I won't, I'll tell you that later. All right, so um, I will tell you this. Okay, so there comes a time when the church age ends. There are a lot of theologians that get together in some room somewhere and they kind of have this idea that, that God is gonna save the Jews because in some sense of the way, when the church age comes to an end, I'm sure you've heard of the rapture or you've seen that movie, uh, Left Behind. Raise your hand if you've seen Left Behind. Raise your hand if you have no idea what we're talking about. We should watch the movie uh, <laughs> or read Revelation. So the rapture is this thing where God raptures his church. That in one instant, the Bible doesn't tell us when or how, but all of a sudden it just seems to indicate that Christians vanish out of the air. Right? In the movie with, I think, uh, Nicolas Cage, I think he's like one of the main actors. Um, he's like a pilot and all of a sudden like the dude next to him, like... Pfft, and like he's like all of a sudden he sees like a Bible and a cross and he's like freaking out right, um, and then like his daughter is like at a uh, at a mall and all of a sudden there's this one image where like someone's hugging their kid and all of a sudden you just see the kid vanish and she's hugging just clothes wild stuff right I don't know if that's how it's going to take place but the Bible seems to indicate that just God makes his children vanish right and he immediately raptures them into heaven right they don't experience a natural death like most of 100% of us will in case Jesus comes. Um, it seems to be that at that time, the Israel age begins and intensifies. That in some sense of the way, all the Jews are going to go, uh-oh. <laughs> like, like that dude 2,000 years ago, we probably shouldn't have killed, right? And uh, it seems to, that, that all of the Jewish people are going to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Let me just tell you this. If you're not a believer in this room and you have a mom or somebody that is, and all of a sudden they just vanish and their clothes are hanging out there, get on your hands and knees, right? <laughs> just start like, Lord, I believe in you. Like, take me home someday, right? Um, because that seems to be what's gonna happen. Now, here are the basics of the mystery that we've been kind of working towards uh, last week and the week before that, and we're gonna finalize and hopefully make not mysterious this week. Number one, the Jews rebelled against God by rejecting his Messiah. We learned about that, right? They were like, Jesus comes knocking on the door. They're like, nah, bro, I don't know who you are. Number two, the Gentiles, raise your hand if you're not Jewish in here. You're a Gentile. Doesn't mean someone who touches tiles gently. I don't know what the word gentle, but it just means that you're not Jewish. Raise your hand if you're Jewish. Raise your hand if you're Jewish. Am I the only person that's Jewish in here? My wife's got the, I mean, my, my daughter has the curly, I can say this, she has a Jew fro, okay? Uh, it's because I'm Jewish, I can say that. Her, she has the curliest hair. But anyways, okay, so uh, the Gentiles hear the gospel, and then they come to Christ by faith. That's what's happening in the church age. And then the last step in this mystery is that someday in the future, Jews will become jealous that we are worshiping their God. We are worshiping Yahweh. And as he has continued to reveal himself in a Trinitarian nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are worshiping the same God they're worshiping. That's very different than in Islam. They're not worshiping the same God. Although they are monotheistic, which means one God, mono, mono is not what your friend got in high school after prom, mono means one, right? Monotheistic, theistic being God, right? And so uh, is, uh, uh, um, we worship the very same God, the very same God, right? We just know a little bit more about this God. We have 27 other books that we attach to their 39 books of the Old Testament, right? 
Um, so in some, some future day, God seems to turn his eye towards Israel and save the Jews because they become something called Messianic Jews. A Messianic Jew is someone who is Jewish, who has confessed faith in Jesus Christ, and they become a Christian, a Christ follower. And they're just simply called Messianic Jews. You can call them Christians or Messianic Jews. So like we discovered last week, God still has a place for the Jews. He still has a plan for them. Um, like I said, this plan entails at the end of days, Jews coming to Christ, or coming to God by placing their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, when you think about it, there is something unique about Israel. Um, no place on, uh, on earth is like Israel. Israel attracts worldwide attention, right? Think about if anything happens in Jerusalem or Israel, it is blasted across the headlines around the entire world. And it gets attention that's way outside of its proportion of size and, and power, right? The eyes of the world, for some reason, continue to turn upon what happens in this place called Israel. I think it's because, like I said a little earlier, God still has his hand upon them. Now, last week, Paul gave us four reasons of why it's evident that God still has his hand upon the Jewish people. I don't want to go over back those today because I only have 10 more minutes. Um, but if you ask me, in your you, when you guys got here today, you should have been a piece of paper. There's a number on the top right, I believe. If you have, want to know what the four things we talked about last week, you can grab your Bible um, and, uh, and text me, and then I'll, I'll walk you through that. All right, grab your Bible, go with me to Romans chapter 11, verse 25. Keep all of that crazy stuff in the back of your mind. Um, it'll set us up for where we, are, uh, where we are headed today. And if not, don't worry. If you don't have your Bible, it'll be up in the Sky Bible. It says this, um, lest you be wise in your own sight. By the way, I'm in the ESV version. Um, okay, I want to pause here for a second. Lest you be wise in your own sight. Here's Paul right away. He goes, look, I'm Jewish. You may not be a Jew, but here's what you need to know. Jews are not not coming to Jesus Christ because we Gentiles are smarter and more intelligent than they are. It's important you understand that. There's something other that's happening here, and he's about to teach us what that is, right? The next thing he says is, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. This mysterion is the Greek word there. A partial highlight hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. What? I want you to highlight the word partial hardening or anything if you're in the, um, uh, the NIV or something like that around those phrases, hardening. Basically what's talking about, that in some sense of the way, that the Jews are hardened from receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ, the euangelion, the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, it says a partial hardening. This means that in some sense of the way, we don't know the number, but God has hardened a certain number of Jews' hearts to be unresponsive and unreceptive to the good news. I don't know if it's 7% or 70% of Israel. All I know is that there's a certain percentage of Jewish people that whatever you do, and however you say it, you could have the best speaking ability of any pastor you've ever heard. You could articulate in, in a magnetic way the truths of, God, of the gospel, and they'll go, nah, nah, I don't believe in that. I don't believe in that. One of the more interesting things that uh, Paul teaches us here is that the Jews' resistance or hardening is actually to the person of Jesus Christ, and it remains a mystery to us. Now, the word mystery here, I already gave you its Greek word, mysterion. The work, uh, it does not mean that it's a mystery as in it's difficult to understand. What it actually means, is it's actually something supernatural that's taking place here, right? It's not caused by natural causation, and we can't necessarily observe um, what's actually happening here. I'll give you an example of this. I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with a Jew before, and you try to talk to them about Jesus Christ. Raise your hand if you've ever had a conversation with a Jew, and you try to talk to them about Jesus Christ. Yeah, you can put your hands down. Um, it almost just never works. And they know the Old Testament 
a billion times better than I'm going to know the Old Testament. I can look in there and I go, in the book of Isaiah, it talks about the suffering servant, that he was pierced for our transgressions. And, or it talks about, um, it gives him certain titles of who he'll be. Uh, in Genesis chapter three, it talks about this, uh, uh, um, I mentioned about the, the person that's gonna come and crush the, the, the serpent's head. But it also talks about that this suffering servant, in some sense of the way, is going to take the punishments of mankind upon himself. What did Adam work his whole life to produce. The Bible says that you'll work your whole life, the curse after Genesis chapter three, your whole life and the ground will produce thorns and thistles. What was the crown that was nailed upon Jesus has made out of? Thorns and thistles, right? Like you look in the Old Testament, you're like, how do you not, how do you not see this, right? Like Noah, the story of boarding an ark by faith and escaping the judgment waters of God. What does the cross promise for you and I? That you can board an ark of faith in Jesus Christ and escape the judgment waters of God. You can look into Abraham. You look into the story of Abraham. Abraham's asked to kill Isaac, his son that he loves. Just before he's about to plunge the knife into Isaac, what does God provide? A lamb. In John 1, what, is, what did John say Jesus was? Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, right? Um, you could take any biblical figure, and it's called a Christological insight. Look into the Old Testament, and you'll see Jesus there. So a few, a few Jews that I, I, I listen to a lot of their commentary, um, whether it be theological commentary or uh, political or whatever it may be, um, is one is Dennis Prager. And um, I think he has some pretty insightful things to say. Uh, I took some of his coursework on the Old Testament. And um, another insightful Jew is Ben Shapiro. And uh, Ben Shapiro does this thing called Sunday specials. And on Sundays, <laughs> um, he interviews people um, that, are, um, that have something interesting to say. And uh, a while ago, um, during COVID, he interviewed two uh, Christian apologists. One was named John MacArthur. He's a pastor um, uh, and the president of Masters University. And then another one was William Lane Craig, who's the top leading Christian philosopher on the planet. Not just Christian philosopher, he's like number one. The guy's brilliant, right? And in the, both interviews, both of these guys did such a phenomenal job for one hour explaining the intricacies of the Old Testament and how it was foreshadowing Jesus and all of this stuff. And at the end of this, with his, with his conversation with William Lane Craig, Going through the ancient Hebrew and all of this, Ben just says, Yeah, you know, just doesn't really, Jesus just doesn't interest me. And I was like, Dude, I'm about to re-give my life right now, right? This is unbelievable. Like, this guy just did the best job I've ever seen anyone do explaining how he is the Jewish king and Messiah, Jesus Christ. And Ben goes, like, yeah. He goes, I just want to change. Literally, he goes, and you can watch this. I, I would encourage you too. He just goes, like, yeah, let's just change the conversation. I'm not really interested in that. And I was just like, dumbfounded, right? His indifference was not emotional. And it was not intellectual, it was spiritual. He is and remains to be blinded by the gospel supernaturally, and it is a mystery. I don't know why, but he is. It is a mystery because I am definitely not more intelligent than him. I am also not more religious than he is. Dude wears a little hat on his head 24-7. Dude is so religious that he doesn't use electronics on his Sabbath on Saturday. He has to walk everywhere. Can't turn on his TV or air conditioning. That is, that's super Jew. That's so religious, right? It's not because like I'm more religious or something than him, right? There's something supernatural going on. He has a spiritual supernatural blindness that Paul's gonna teach us about today. So I want you to go with me to uh, verse 26. I've already spoken for 25 minutes. All right, here we go. Um, and in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written, Remember? Not for all times, synchronically, diachronically for a future event. The deliverer will come from Zion. If you care to know this, this is um, prophesied in Isaiah. 
and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this is Jeremiah 31, there'll be a covenant, a contract, a promise with them when I will take away their sin. Simply put, God is not done with the people of Israel, and there will come a day when um, all of Israel and its leadership will profess faith in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul does not only teach us that there's a partial hardening of Israel right now, that for some reason these Jews just seem, these super intelligent Jews. By the way, um, statistically, Jews are the most intelligent people on the planet. Per, per, I don't know, per capita, but per individual. Um, Jews make up 0.02% of the global population, and they make up 36% of all Nobel Prizes in economics, mathematics, all of it. So per, per individual, Jews are brilliant, right? It's not because of intelligence, it's not because of emotions, it's not because they can't see the, and draw the connections. They, they are literally blinded, Right? Um, so there's also a limited time. It's not going to go on forever. And Paul tells us when this veil, when this blindness will be lifted from the Jews' eyes, it says the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And if you're a smart individual, you're going to go, what on earth does that mean? The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What does that mean? It has two meanings. Number one, um, a certain numbers of non-Jewish people are going to come to faith in Christ. 16.38 billion. I'm just kidding, it doesn't say in the Bible. I have no idea. But there's going to be a certain percentage of the non-Jewish world that's going to come to Christ. God knows the number. And when that number is hit, God will rapture his church and start witnessing in some way to the Jewish people. But the second meaning, the word fullness, means non-Jews experiencing the fullness of faith and blessings by having a relationship with the Jewish God. And in some sense of the way, that makes Israel jealous and says, I want that type of relationship too. I actually think we're beginning to see this now. More Jews are coming to faith in Christ in our lifetime than ever in human history other than the time of when Jesus, Paul, Peter, all these people walked on the earth. For the last 2,000 years, more Jews are coming to Christ in the last 50 years, 100 to 50 years, really after since May 14th, 1948 is when we reconstituted Israel after World War II. But after that date, more, more Jews are coming to faith in Christ than ever in the last 2,000 years of history after Jesus' death. That's crazy to think about. In fact, there's some um, organizations I would encourage you just to go watch their YouTube channels or whatever it is. A few is Jews for Jesus. They have an incredible website where Jews are just sharing how God has continued to reveal himself. They'll talk about being Jewish their whole life and all of a sudden, like a veil, like calluses from their eyes being like, just lit, taken off. And uh, they can now see what they couldn't see before. And they can't explain why they couldn't see it, but now they easily see it. Another one's called One for Israel. And then the last one's called Chosen People Ministries. Have some phenomenal stories um, and testimonies of God revealing himself. Verse 28 and 29 says this, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Um, One of these, I think it's Jews for Jesus, um, they have uh, uh, this guy giving a testimony of how he's trying to witness in Israel to Jews that are Orthodox, meaning Jews. And um, he says that they become violent towards him. Like Like it's in some sense the way these sweet people, when they presented the gospel of Jesus Christ, they get like, angry and aggressive and they attack him and like verbally and actually physically sometimes, right? So there's like this idea that there are enemies, but he's about to teach us they're not. But as regards of election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, their forefathers being the people who created Israel, um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, those people. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Here's what you need to know for this just for the sake of time, that one of the reasons that God has not given up on Israel is the same reason God has not given up on you that God will never give up on us and he leaves the path of restoration always open back to him. In the book of Luke chapter 15, it's one of my favorite stories in all of the scriptures. It's a story called the prodigal son, but I hate the title because it 
Jesus didn't call the prodigal son. He was given that title many years later. It's really a story of two sons, but more importantly, it's a story of the father. Because both sons are prodigals. They're wayward. They are distancing themselves from the father who loves them. And the story is not really to identify with either, either one of the kids. It's to see how gracious and loving and merciful and kind the father is. One son is a fool, and he takes the father's money. Um, he says, uh, uh, we're going to act like you're dead, dad, and just give me my inheritance now. So the dad, for some reason, does this, liquidates all his accounts, sells all of his cryptocurrencies and a bunch of other things and Dogecoin and all this, right? Rakes up all the money and hands to his son what would be his son's if he died. And then the son just acts like an idiot, you know, goes and buys Ferraris and strippers and cocaine and a bunch of other things, right? And goes off to the, it goes off to the far land and squanders all that he had. And then he, he's on his way back home and he's just thinking like, I had it so much better at my dad's house. I'm just gonna go see if my dad could even hire me to go like mow the grass or whatever it was. And you can imagine like he's just kind of like slowly walking home and then it says, while he was a long way off, it says in Luke 15, the father saw him and it says, felt compassion. This is not how the Jews thought of God. He was like, and the father saw him through his rifle scope and shot him. Like that's how they would have thought the story was gonna end. And it says that the father came and ran to his son. Jewish guys never ran. That never happened. It's not a manly thing to do back then, especially because they wore like dresses. They had to like hike this thing up. Like it, just would not, it was not a good picture, right? And this would never happen. It would have been a dishonorable thing to run in public. He goes to the city square, grabs his boy, picks his son off the ground, and just like, my boy's home, right? That, that God has this heart, right, for people who are, are, are far. This is not at all the, the God that the Jews thought they really kind of worshiped and had, that he was way more gracious, way more merciful, way more forgiving, way more loving than they could have ever dreamed. Continues and says this in verse 30. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, Paul wants you to kind of click pause and go, look, you're not smarter, you're not more intelligent than these Jews who aren't accepting Jesus. There's something going on with them. However, I want you to remember that they're also being disobedient right now by not receiving Jesus as their king and Messiah and Lord and God. But remember, do you remember when you were disobedient? And that's the question I want. Do you remember when God first made himself known to you? Uh, do you remember when he first offered you his mercy? I've shared the story with, with you, right? For me, it was December 31st, 2010. I drank a full bottle of vodka. I turned, four, I turned 18 four days before that on December 27th. And I was three o'clock in the morning, violently throwing up in this bush as a senior in high school, thinking, God, you, I know you have, you have better for me. And it was in that moment I felt like God was saying, hey, look, I forgive you. I can restore you. I can renew you. I can give you a life that you couldn't even dream of having. And so that was the last time I decided to drink alcohol. God's changed my story in my life ever since then. And I've, I've learned to become more obedient day in and day out. Continues and says this, but now you've received mercy because of their, the Jewish people, disobedience. So this is the idea that Paul would preach in synagogues and Paul would preach in temples and Paul would go to the Jewish people first. And what he found is a lot of them weren't listening. Now, a lot of them were. It was this guy named Nicodemus who actually paid for Jesus' body and paid for all of the burial cloth and a bunch of other things to be placed upon his, his crucified body. And then a guy named Joseph of Arimathea who's, who's used basically his tomb, and that was the tomb in which Jesus laid. And so it's one of the, one of the reasons we know where exactly probably where Jesus' body was laid because it was laid in a very famous Jew's tomb, Joseph of Arimathea. So... Here's basically what's happening here. He's saying, look, Paul went to a bunch of Jews and a bunch of them didn't believe. So he went to the next group of people that he thought would listen, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and they did. Now, had the Jews listened, the message may have never come our way. 
continues and says this in verse 31. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also now receive mercy. For God has co-signed to all the disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So Paul's argument here is that God used the Jews' disobedience, their rejection of their own Messiah, to give the opportunity to you and to I, or to those of us that are non-Jewish people, right? Now let me ask you a question. God, in some sense of the way, seems to be taking people's acceptance, Gentiles' acceptance of Jesus Christ, to show somehow the Jews that they're disobedient, to show the obedience of non-Jewish people, to show how disobedient the Jewish people are being to the Messiah. Why do you think, or what is the thing that you think keeps an individual from coming to God? In fact, I'm going to give you, actually, you know, that's a discussion question every year. So um, I want you to think of this just in your mind right now. What do you think is one of the things that keeps an individual from coming to God? It's almost always a sense of disobedience that comes in the form of self-righteousness, or rather a self-confident attitude. I don't need help. I can handle it. It was and is this attitude that kept the Jews from accepting Jesus. They thought through following their religious duty and through their ritual that they didn't actually need a savior. Simply put, they didn't see their disobedience and that God is using our obedience to show one day their lack of obedience. One of the things we discovered is that they, the Jewish people, think they have an own, their own righteousness. They have an ability to get right with God. Now listen, listen closely. Many of us aren't any different. Like, you actually believe God's impressed by your good deeds. Ask any modern American that doesn't attend church regularly, or even that does attend church regularly, how are you getting to heaven? Why, why do you think, like, are you, do you think you're going to heaven or hell? Oh, I mean, I'm probably going to, to heaven. Okay, why? Almost 100% of the time, because I'm a good person. Because I'm a good person. That's not found anywhere in Scripture. The opposite's found. Anyone that knows their Bible says there's not one that's good. The Bible, the Bible continually tells you, I'm sorry to break it to you. I know what your parents told you. You're not good enough you need a savior. You're, you're more than a mistaker that has a second, third, and fourth chance that you and I are a sinner who desperately needs a savior. So I'm going to reach down into our story and to pull us out of something that we can't. There is no ladder tall enough that's going to get you and I out of the hole that sin has placed us in. You need nothing but the hand of God to reach down into that hole and to pull you and I out of it. And that's exactly what the cross of Jesus Christ has done for you and for me. Now you have the Jews in the ancient world that thought God was amped on them because they had cool hair and they wore a hat and some other things. And God goes, what? Like you, think like, you think like you're in a good relationship with me because you're wearing a hat? Are you kidding? <laughs> and then in comes Jesus, and no wonder why the Jews didn't accept him. He's like, God, it literally says this. So my, uh, uh, forgive me for the vulgarity of this statement. It says that your good deeds before God are used menstrual rags. They're used tampons to God. Go. So in comes Jesus, and that all the Jews think like, dude, God is so amped on me. And he's like, God is so not amped on you. When God thinks of you, he thinks of and inserts that illustration. They're like, well, we're crucifying you for sure. That's what's happening on Saturday. You know, like our, our Friday, right? Like, like, that's what's happening. And uh, he says even more than that. In John chapter three, there's this encounter with this guy named Nicodemus, who wasn't a Christian, but in this moment, he comes to him, and Jesus got a big audience, and there's this interaction, and Jesus says, look, you Nicodemus, and Nicodemus was like a super good Jew, right? Really high up in the Jewish class and all of that, and he goes, you need to be reborn. That is such a fundamentally offensive statement. I'm sure you've heard this. Oh, I'm reborn, brother, right? Like spiritually reborn, 
It means Jesus is saying, you need to be reborn. You need to be made holy and 100% new, completely new, reborn, because I can do nothing with you as you are. You are so offensive and so broken. I need to make you new. I need to make you reborn. You hear the Jews, they're not like, they thought God was amped on them. Not that God thought they were a tampon. Like, they're like, like so they're all, they're all broken inside, right? And in comes Jesus saying these kind of offensive things, and he says these things of vulgarity. He says these things of intensity to, sh- like, to shake them and go, you don't have a righteousness of your own. You need me. You need a savior, right? And so chapter 11 wraps up, and there's a change that happens here now. Paul, you'll see in Romans 12, changes the way in which he's about to teach us. Now, we've been in this for 29 weeks now, and Paul's about to make a huge change in chapter 12. The way that chapter 1 through 11 are written is to teach us all that I just talked about. You don't have a righteousness of your own, the way that God views humankind, that you're not good, that you need a savior, all of that stuff. And in chapter 12, he's gonna change this and says, in light of all of that, this then is how you should live. In light of all that you have just learned for the last 30 or so weeks, as we've gone through the book of Romans chapter one, all the way through 11, Paul is now getting to the end of this theology and he kind of breaks into this spontaneous praise and worship of how this awesome God has mystery, how this awesome God is righteous and can give you a righteousness. If you were with us, we learned about this word called imputation or imputed righteousness, that you are not right. You stand on this side condemned and separated from God. On this side was the person of Jesus Christ who was in a right relationship with God, who says on the cross, Elohi, Elohi, lama sepaktani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he said, why have you forsaken me? So you can say, thank you for welcoming me. See, on the cross, there was this beautiful exchange where what was true of him now becomes true of us, and what was true of us, we were separate from God, became true of him momentarily, right? And so he realizes all this, and he breaks out in this praise and worship, going, God, you're bigger than I could ever think. You, the way in which you have I've given us righteousness, the ways you have saved us, the way you have a plan for the Gentiles and the plan for the Jews. I want you to follow with me. It says this in uh, Romans 11, verses 33 to 36. Oh, the depths of riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and amen. Here's what Paul wants to end on doing. He wants you to get your eyes up towards heaven to see how great and awesome and grand God really is, right? Um, I'm running out of minutes, so I don't want to spend more time on this thought, but I will tell you one more thing. Um, I want to encourage you to do this thing that really changed my life, and I call it getting small with God. If, so here's one of the things I do. I take a day of the week, it's a very specific day, and I make sure it's this day always, and I actually physically come here at night, and I just walk around this building, or I sit outside, and I just look up into the skies. Do this in your backyard, do it wherever it is. One of the reasons I do this is it reminds me how great and awesome and mighty God is. As I'm thinking of my problems for insert whatever it is, my anxieties or worries about whatever it is, and I look up into the stars and I see how many light years away the star is, and it's all in the palm of God's hand. I go, my God's big enough to handle anything that comes my way. So where do you go to get small with God, to place yourself appropriately, to make him the Lord of your life, and to also place your problems that look like mountains to you, but they're smaller than Tic Tacs to God? Where do you go to get small with God. I wanna encourage you to find a place weekly to recalibrate, reorient your life 
but who is, yeah, reorients to who God is, and it's not you. See, one of the things I think, I believe God made the universe big and man small to teach us something about ourselves. Psalms 19.1, for the heavens declare the glory of God. So where do you go to get small? I'm gonna ask you that next week too. Where do you go to get small, to place God appropriately, see how great and grand he is, and to place yourself appropriately? I kind of give you this quote week after week, and it's that God is not bigger than you think. God is bigger than you can think. He begins where your imagination comes to an end, and that's the God that we worship. Put your arm around somebody, I'll pray for you guys, and I'll get you guys in your groups. Father, today we thank you that you are a God that is great, one that saves, and that you have a plan for us, and as we learned today, you even have a plan for uh, the Jews. Father, we ask that you would continue to grow um, our understanding of you and our love, God, for you. Continue to lead us as we jump into the groups now. We love you in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, hallelujah. We hope you enjoyed listening to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast. For more information about our services, events, and ways to get involved, head on over to scgchurch.org. Thanks again for listening.